right, if you remember last week that um, we talked about how that uh, Haman, of course, was killed. And the problem was, of course, as Esther came to see the king again, was uh, a, a particular situation that needed to be resolved. And what was the situation that needed to be resolved? Haman was dead, but what, Roger? <laughs> and so what was the solution? They can't change the law, so what did they do? Yes, great. That they could fight back, and so basically you have one law fighting with another law, really, because one law said all the Jews are supposed to be destroyed, but there's another law saying, well, these Jews are supposed to be destroyed, and they can fight back, and you're going to have uh, uh, the government behind you to fight back. Well, the very first time I ever read the book of Esther that I can remember that I was old enough to understand and appreciate it was uh, many, many years ago, but something always bothered me about this next section that we're about to go into. Because in my logical mind, I thought, well, if there was a decree to kill all the Jews, and you read in the text that the people were bewildered that even such a law was put into law, and now we have another law saying the Jews are going to fight back and they have at their disposable, disposal the arms and the help of the government, why was there a battle at all? That always bothered me. Why was there a battle at all? I mean... Obviously, the king wasn't on the side of the people who were going to do the killing of the Jews anymore. It was still law. It was in effect. and needed to be carried out. But I can see um, some soldiers going to a Jew's house and knock on the door and say, we're here to kill you. And the Jews saying, well, we're here to repel you. And, they, and the guy said, well, I feel repelled. I'm leaving. I mean, why, why was there a fight at all? I saw Roger's hand first, and I'll go to Karen. Well, but there was a lot of killing going on. I mean, 75,000 people were dead before it was over with. Yeah, so there was, some, there was some fighting. What do you want to say, Karen? Well, I like all of your answers. I receipt my, I'm trying to figure out what was in my pocket. Um, I like all of your answers, and we can only conjecture where all these people come from that they end up killing, uh, and they killed them because they were attacking them. Um, but we know something for sure. The text that we're going to see here in just a little bit uh, talks about the enemies of the Jews. And that leads you to believe that in the land, not only there in the capital city of Susa, but also in the provinces that were all part of the uh, Persian Empire, and it was a big empire, uh, there were people who just downright hated the Jews. Uh, they were anti-Semitic, just like today. There are people who just downright hate the Jews. And... Um, so they had that particular uh, thought that this was an opportunity that maybe even some of what, My what Michael said, you know, well, I hate them. I won't try to kill them. Let's see, see how well they can defend themselves. There may have been some greed involved, as Michael said. Uh, there may have been some people who were followers of Haman. Uh, maybe they were promised a lot of stuff. Uh, by Haman if once the Jews were taken out and now they were upset because it's not going to happen and so they're going to take out their vengeance on the Jews. But there's something we absolutely know for sure, some people that were involved in the fighting. Because when we get into chapter 9, we discover that there were at least 10 men who probably had a lot of followers 
who maybe even had their own armies. And we don't know how big these armies were. But Michael, who were these ten men? The ten sons of Haman. Now, if there was ever somebody that probably had felt like they wanted to get in a fight with the Jews and see if they could beat them, it would be Haman's sons. That's right. Esther just got their, he, he got, all the, got the crib and everything. Um, yes? Oh, that's so good, Roger. We're going to talk more about that in a little bit. I'm surprised. You're, thinking, you're thinking the same way I'm thinking now. That's a little scary. <clears throat> oh, okay. Okay. And um, it's interesting. You're going to see this brought out in the text in an unusual way. Now, what Roger is talking about, we talked about this at the very beginning of this book, that there was really two sides of this entire story, that if you center it down, it comes down to Mordecai and Haman. And Mordecai was a descendant of Saul, and Haman was a descendant of Agag, who was the king of the Amalekites. And Haman's even, uh, even referred to as an Agagite, okay? And so... Uh, We're going to see in chapter 9 what might be the actual fulfillment of what Moses talks about there in Deuteronomy 25. God said, the time will come when I will blot out every one of the Amalekites. Well, if there were still descendants of the Amalekites when when, um, Mordecai was alive, then that hadn't taken place yet. And it may be this was the final battle, if you will, to finally get rid of them. And there's something that's very unusual brought out in the text that makes you think that, that even the Jews understood this to be the case. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. Um, uh, of course, we're also going to read tonight about the institution of the Feast of Purim. And um, since Roger brought it up, it's interesting. The Feast of Purim lasts two days. The first day they go to the synagogue and uh, they read the book of Esther. But the second day they go to the synagogue and they read the book of Esther again. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But they also read the passage from Exodus chapter 18, which talks about the Amalekites. And that's part of the celebration of the Feast of Purim. So there is um, something more going on behind the scenes, perhaps, than what we actually see here in the book. All good comments. I appreciate it so much. Well, let's start looking at um, chapter 9, which is actual, the actual battle taking place. It says, now in the twelfth month, that is the month of Adar, and that corresponds with our month of March, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king commandment and his decree grew near, grew near to be put into execution. Um, I ate something very spicy for supper, and it's making my nose run a little bit, so pardon me if I sniffle some. And that day that the enemies of the Jews hoped to have power over them, though it was turned to the contrary that the Jews had rule over them that hated them, and that's just making the, the comment that, you know, there was a decree, but there was another decree where they were going to fight back, and of course they went. The Jews gathered themselves together in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Xerxes to lay hand on such as sought their hurt, and no man could withstand them for the fear of them that fell on upon all the people. Now all the rulers of the provinces and the lieutenants and the deputies and the officers of the king helped the Jews because the fear of Mordecai fell upon them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame went out throughout all the provinces. For this man, Mordecai, waxed greater and greater. Now, if I stop reading right there at verse 4, you'd think, well, why in the world did anybody fight at all, as I said? And that always bothered me as a younger person, uh, because it just seems to me it would make a whole lot of sense why I'd have the battle at all. Because one decree canceled out the other decree. 
But notice what verse 5 says. Thus the Jews smote all their enemies. These people weren't just people who were carrying out the king's decree. These were people who were considered enemies of the Jews. And so these are people who had some kind of hatred or, or, or they wanted to kill the Jews. It wasn't just some type of state business that was going on. These are people who had an axe to grind, if you will. Uh, but the text goes on and says that the Jews smote all their enemies with the stroke of the sword and with slaughter and destruction and did what they would do unto those that, now see what it says here, that hated them. So, you know, that's why there was a battle. Because even though there was a decree saying the Jews could fight back, such was the hatred of the Jews that um, they were going to do their best to try to defeat them and thought maybe they could prevail. Um, Every time there is a fight between two men, if they're good fighters, one of them thinks they're going to win, and the other one thinks they're going to win. But guess what? Somebody always loses, and maybe that's what's going on here. But in verse 6 it says, And in Sushan the palace the Jews destroyed 500 men. So here we get our first casualty report. And it's kind of misleading because you see the word palace, you, you get this mental image of the Jews storming the palace of Xerxes and killing these people but what it's referring to there in the capital city where the palace is. So in the capital city alone, uh, of the capital of Persia, 500 of the enemies of the Jews were killed. Now we're going to start looking at the entire province in a little bit, or the entire uh, empire, and look at the different provinces, and you'll see that total rise. Uh, but right there in the city. But then it names, beginning at verse 7, and I'm not going to try to say all these names, uh, but verse 10 tells us who they are, that they are the ten sons of Haman. Okay? So if you want to know what the ten sons of Haman were named, um, they have it listed right there. And they had some long names. Uh, they're hard to say. Now, Michael, I know you'd like to do a little study in preparation for class. When you looked at these ten names, did you come across anything unusual that, that you might have came across? Exactly right. That's, that's one of the peculiar things about these ten men. When they read these names, when the book of Esther is being read, even today, that the reader in the synagogue or the head of the family who reads it in the house says these ten names all in one breath. And um, what it symbolizes is not only the disdain they had for this man, but it's supposed to symbolize that they all died at one time. They all died in one breath, if you will. Okay? Did you just find out anything else about these things? A little antidotal information, anecdotal information? There you go. See, I knew you'd discover some stuff like I discover when I do some study. Yeah, in the Hebrew Bible, these names, when you come to this in the Hebrew Bible, you know, there'll be, of course, it comes from this direction. When you read the Hebrew Bible, you start here and read this way. But in the Hebrew Bible, you'll go along with the story of Esther, and you're reading along, reading along until you get to this part, and you find the names, and it's one single column where every name is stacked on top of each other. And then after you get past these names, and it starts reading the same way it did before. And as Michael said, the reason why it's written in the Hebrew Bible that way is to symbolize the fact that they believe that the way that the ten sons of Haman were put to death were, was that they had the spike, like their father died on, and typically, you would have a spike for each man, but not with these ten boys. They had one spike, they put one boy on it, they put another boy on top of him, 
I kept pushing down until all ten were on one spike. Whew, I know, doesn't sound pleasant at all. Um, but uh, that's the way the sons of Haman were put to death, that they believe. And, um, of course, King James Version will use the word gallows, but once again, it's the idea of the spike. And you can see how that is symbolized with the way it's written in the Hebrew Bible where they have all ten sons stacked on top of each other uh, in the text. Yes, Michael. Yeah. We, yeah, we just don't know. But it is interesting that the way they're stacked up in the Hebrew Bible, you know, um, Kind of a, you get a visual image just when you look at that passage. You don't even have to read it. Just look down. Why is that like that? Oh, those ten boys are stacked on top of each other. Yes, Karen. Well, that and also verse 5 is dealing with the fact that there was no resistance, that they, they, they couldn't be stopped. It's really it's kind of the idea there, too, that, that nothing got in their way. The Jews were victorious. Who, who, who decided they were going to come attack them? The Jews took care of it. And, uh, of course, once again, God is not mentioned anywhere in this book, but um, I think that in verse 2, where it says at the end, for the fear of them fell upon all the people, there's some commentators that make the point that this is because God is on their side. Uh, there's the idea of the fear of God there. And so, uh, and certainly God was with them because God is behind them in this entire book. Um, but I'm going to say more about this in just a moment, but where it says... Um, Verse 10, where it says, but on the spoil laid they not their hand. What does that mean? In other words, whoever they beat, they didn't take any of the spoils of war. They didn't take any of their property. They didn't take anything of value that belonged to the people they defeated. Now, before we go any further, I think it should be, we should take a small little break here and talk about a little bit about what uh, Roger brought up, and that is that um, this more than likely... Uh, maybe was the final defeat of the Amalekites. Um, because here with the killing of the ten sons, uh, you basically, um, as far as we can tell, we don't know if they had children or not, but it's the idea behind it, the fact that this was the final blotting out of the Amalekites that's talked about in Deuteronomy 17 uh, and 19. Okay? So uh, we have pictured for us the final battle that started with the descendants of Saul, if you will, in Mordecai, and the descendants of Agag that were seen through Haman. And so we've had that taken place, but now pay attention to verse, the end of verse 5. I just had you read, okay? We're going to come back to it. And then look at, we're going to drop down to verses 15 to 16 to make a point, okay? Look at the last phrase of verse 15 and the last phrase of, of verse 16, the King James Version is misleading because it says, but on the prey they laid not their hand. And then verse 16 says the same thing, but they laid not their hands on the prey. Now somebody has a different translation, what do you have? Plunder. Now, three different times it talks about the Jews totally destroying these enemies of God I just alluded to the fact that this may have been the final defeat and the blotting out of the Amalekites. Why does the writer emphasize three different times that they didn't take any spoils? Is there any kind of connection whatsoever? You're exactly right. Talking about King Saul, and he was told to utterly destroy the Amalekites, and not to take any of the spoils, but to destroy it all. 
But what did Saul do? He took it. In fact, Samuel even said, what's this meaning of the sound of the bleeding of sheep and the lowing of cattle? Everything's supposed to be dead, but yet I hear this noise off in the distance. Okay? And so, Michael, what do you want to say? Exactly right. And, and so you read different commentators, and they'll either go over the vein that, uh, as he was saying here, that um, it shows the uh, morality of the Jews and that they had the right, but that's not what they were in this for. They were in this for the purpose of, of stopping the destruction of the Jews. And then you also find some that, that say that this is symbolic for the fact that the Jews understood really what's going on behind the scenes here. And they understood the story of Saul. And they understood that this was the final destroying of the Amalekites and how they were not going to be guilty of the same thing that Saul was guilty of, and that is taking the spoils of the Amalekites. See, the bottom line behind this that, that sometimes people miss, and I brought this out early in the class, you often wonder if Saul had done what he was supposed to have do, done in the beginning, if there, were, if there was ever going to be a need for the book of Esther. Because if he had done what he was supposed to do, there never would have been a Haman. And, um, of course, we don't we know how history turns out, but uh, with Saul, that was the turning point of his kingdom. That particular occasion, he lost the kingdom after that. And that put an end to the, the, uh, the royal line of Saul, if you will, as far as being king of, of the Jews. And so uh, a lesson we can learn from that, we don't know if something that happens, you know, almost a thousand years in the past doesn't have an effect on what's going to happen in the future. And but here we, at, we see God's promises finally coming to a conclusion, if you will, and that is that God said he would blot out uh, the Amalekites on the, on the face of the earth, and uh, it certainly happens here. But it's all, it's, for me, it's just when you see it all together and then you kind of start thinking about it and, and you start your mind start doing the do-do-do-do stuff, you think, wow, this is some pretty neat stuff happening here. Yes. They were. They were very much cowards. And um, the fact that in just a little bit we're going to read that very text because the Jews read it on, during the Feast of Purim where they did that. Yes, Karen, you want to say something? Oh, okay, you're just waving sweetly at me. Okay. All right. Anyway, I just think all that is kind of neat. But it says in verse 11, On that day the number of those that were slain in Sushan the palace was brought before the king, not the actual bodies but the number. And the king said unto Esther the queen, The Jews have slain and destroyed 500 men in Sushan the palace and the ten sons of Haman. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? And now what is thy petition? And it shall be granted thee. Or what is thy request further? And it shall be done. Uh, he, he knows what's happened in the capital city. He hasn't got a report yet what's happened out throughout the empire. And once again, this empire is huge. And keep in mind that the decree was for the whole empire. And though we have no records of it, that means in the city of Jerusalem the Jews could be killed. That means if there were any Jews in Ethiopia, they could be killed. That means if there were Jews anywhere in the entire empire, of the Persian Empire, they could be killed. And so we're talking about a vast area here, and all the reports hadn't got in yet. But yet the king still tells Esther, if there's anything else I can do, please let me know. As the, as the battle continues on, please let me know if I can do anything. Well, Esther says, if it please the king, let it be granted to the Jews which are in Sushan to do tomorrow also according to this day's decree 
and let, uh, let Haman's sons be hung upon the gallows. And that's the uh, verse that Michael was alluding to, that they might have been killed first and then um, hung up later. But basically, she's, uh, Esther is telling the king, he says, uh, you know, give us another day of fighting just in case there's still people that we haven't taken care of here in the city because uh, basically she didn't believe the fighting was done yet, even though with the 500 being killed and Haman's sons being captured. And verse 14 says, And the king commanded it so to be done, and the decree was given at Sushan, they hanged Haman's ten sons. Um, and that says in verse 15, For the Jews that were in Sushan gathered themselves together on the 14th day, also the month of Adar, and slew 300 man, men at Sushan. But on the prey they laid not their hands. So there was some more fighting. They killed an additional 300. But the other Jews that were in the king's provinces gathered themselves together and stood for their lives and the rest of their enemies and slew of their foes 70 and 5,000 but they did not lay hands on their prey. Yes. Uh, my impression was it was a one-day affair. Yeah, yeah. Well, think, this, this is what, it's all, it's all based on Haman's day. Haman picked a day to kill the Jews. Mordecai's decree was supposed to take care of that day, but there was another day that they were concerned about. <laughs> all right. So, um, by the way, not if it, this is true or not, if it's you know, just somebody being trying to think beyond what they need to think, but somebody figured up, if you take the 75,000 and you divide it up all, among all the different provinces that were under Persian control, it boils down to 600 people were killed in each province, which I don't know if that means anything or not, because it might have been 800 were killed in one province and 200 in another, but they just, that's just the way they divided it out. I'm just, you know, just little things like that I pick up on. Um, but on verse 17, it says, On the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day of the same rested they, and they made it a feast, uh, made it a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews that were at Sashan assembled together on the 13th day thereof, and on the 14th day of, and on the 15th day of the same, they rested and made a day of feasting and gladness. And um, that's a little hard to understand there in the King James, but what they're saying is different people were feasting at different times because they quit fighting at different times. Okay, and basically the people in the city were feasting early and the people in the country maybe were feasting later because of the battle. Because it says in verse 19, therefore the Jews of the villages that dwelt in the unwalled towns made the 14th day of the month Adar a day of gladness and feasting and a good day and of sending portions one to another. And um, so you had a feast day on the 13th and you had a feast day on the 14th. And here's what's weird that's going to result out of this is that you had people who lived in the city that started saying, well, our official feast day for this victory is going to be the 13th. But then you had the people out in the country saying, no, our official feast day is going to be the 14th. Kind of like argue whether or not Frankie and Cheryl were married every year in February or just leap years in February. It all depends on how you look at it. And so this became a discussion. And, um, in fact, it got to the point that in beginning at verse 20, Mordecai had to write a letter about it. Now, I don't know how rough it got and why there was such much consternation about which day was going to be which, but Mordecai wrote these things and sent letters to all the Jews that were in all the provinces to establish this among them that they should keep the 14th day of the month and the 15th day of the same yearly. 
He was definitely a politician. He knew how to compromise. He said, instead of having just one feast day, we'll just have two, okay? And we'll both celebrate them. And um, kind of like somebody that has a birthday on Christmas. You can get to celebrate two things in one day. And so, um, verse 22, as the days were in, the Jews rested from the enemies, and the month was returned unto them from sorrow to joy, from mourning into the good day, and they shall make them days of feasting and joy and of sending portions one to another and gifts to the poor. So here we have the establishment of the Feast of Purim, which the Jews still celebrate today. Now, when we hear about a Jewish feast day, we often think about it being a religious day. And there's a lot of religious activity that's associated with the Feast of Purim, but it's not really a religious holiday as much as it is a patriotic day. Get it out of my mouth correctly. Um, why would it be considered more of a, uh, like our 4th of July, than you would say um, the religious world looks at Easter today, for example? Why is it not a Jewish feast day? Even though it's celebrated by Jews even to this day. Well, and also, God didn't command this. God didn't command them to hold a feast day. Who commanded them to have a feast day? Oh, Mordecai. Mordecai is the guy. He's the one that commanded it. So even though this has religious significance because we're talking about a book that's in the Bible and they go to a religious place to observe this day, um, it's still more about the Jews as a nation than than it is the Jews as a religion. Now, kind of... Give you, I've told you about the Feast of Purim before, but kind of add some little bit more things to it now that we got to this point. Uh, first of all, you remember it's called the Feast of Purim. Why? What's Purim mean? Casting of lots. And so it all started with him, uh, Haman casting the lots. Okay. And as you see in the text here, there's two different days. And uh, the first day, the way the Jews celebrate it, is they go to the synagogue. And there will be the, the reading of the book of Esther, okay? And as we talked about earlier, when they come to the name of Haman, people boo, they stomp their feet, they say, may he perish, uh, may his name be blotted out, um, they um, hiss, they make all kinds of commotion. Um, in fact, uh, there's even uh, this... I don't know what you want to call it, a rattle or a cowbell or a noisemaker. Um, that's called a, a gregar that the children bring to the service that when they move it, it makes just all kinds of racket. And, of course, that gives the kids a big thrill, and they get to make all that racket, but they can only do it when Haman's name is mentioned. And, of course, when Esther and Mordecai's names are mentioned, um, there's a lot of cheering and clapping and carrying on, and... Um, Phrases like, may, they, uh, may their name live forever, and that kind of thing. Um, it's also significant that while the person who's in charge of reading the book of Esther on this first day there at the synagogue, he emphasizes, he gets really, really loud when he gets to what's known as the four verses of redemption. And the four verses of redemption are chapter 2 and verse 5, chapter 8, verses 15 and 16, and chapter 10 and verse 3. And we talked about that earlier, but they get very, very loud. That's the, like the climax of the reading four different places, okay? Uh, some 
situations, uh, they will go out of the synagogue, and there are some uh, people who will celebrate the Feast of Purim by burning an effigy of Haman outside the synagogue. And I guess that depends a lot on what the city codes and whatnot uh, are involved. Uh, they'll go home and eat a meal of boiled peas and beans. Now, why in the world would they go eat a dinner if you're going to celebrate of boiled peas and, and beans? I've yet to figure out why on New Year's Day we have to eat that old nasty peas we have to eat then. I don't, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't like them black-eyed peas. They taste like dirt to me. Um, but, anyway, but, but why would you think the Jews would have a meal that has some symbolism of boiled beans and peas? Well, they believe that that was the meal that Daniel ate when he asked to have something different than the king's dainties. I wish Jeremy was in here when we could talk about the dainties. Um, and they think that that was his meal of pulse, that that was the thing that he thrived on. And the symbolism is they're going all the way back to Daniel, who was their leader, um, and, and the fact that he was one of their founding fathers, of what you will, while they were in captivity. And so that's why they do that. You also notice in verse 19 and also in verse 22 where it says, of sending portions one to another, um, of sending portions one to another and gifts to the poor. Another thing they do on the first day of the Feast of Purim is that they will uh, send uh, desserts to people. And uh, this is some type of confectionery, but they will send gifts to people. And they also have to make a money gift to at least two poor people as part of this celebration. One of the uh, desserts that they send out during this time is a pie that has three corners. And you would send two of these to a friend uh, in celebration of this thing. And the pie, like I said, it has three corners. And so it's kind of, you know, kind of shaped in a triangle. Um, be kind of like, you know, right angle with a corner here, corner here, corner here. And what would you think that symbolized? Well, it wouldn't be in the Trinity. That's a good guess, though. No, it wouldn't be the gallows, but you're getting close to what's going on. The craziest thing, these little pies are called Haman's ears. Ears. They're supposed to be, the three corners represent his ears. And showing, and showing that the, the total conquest of the enemy by cutting off their ears. So they would send these little fruit pies and call them Haman's ears. You know, just all kinds of different traditions. But the next day, they would go back to the synagogue, and this time they would read the book of Esther, but this time they would read it in a very somber way. There would be no cheering. There would be no um, uh, booing. There would be prayers that would be said. It's more of a solemn service. And then at the end of the reading of the book of Esther, uh, they would read uh, Exodus chapter 17. I think I said... 18 minutes ago, but it's actually 17 if I remember correctly, or maybe it is 18. Um, yeah, it is in 17. Yeah, 17 beginning at 8. That's what's making me think 18. Uh, they will read the section that goes from uh, chapter 8 to the end of the chapter. Uh, this is read after the book of Esther is done, and it talks about the battle with the Amalekites. And then it talks about in verse 16, For he said, Because the Lord hath sworn that the Lord will have war with the Amalekite, uh, Amalek, from generation to generation. And so that's read on the second day of Feast of Purim. And then they go home and they'll have their family uh, reading of it. 
and that would be the end of the feast and end of the different observances. And, and um, a, good, um, a good Orthodox Jew will still do this today. Uh, some of the other non-Orthodox Jews have turned this into a big, my time's already out. Man, y'all were, y'all were having so much fun, I forgot what time it was. Uh, so I guess we will spend one more Wednesday night on this, at least for a few minutes. Uh, but anyway, uh, any final questions or comments? My time got away from me. I was having just too, too much fun up here talking about Haman's ears. All right. Thank you. <clears throat>